Well, good morning, everyone. I love the sound of you guys greeting each other. So glad that you made it. Hey, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to get into a teaching from the scriptures here in a minute. But before we do that, I just have to say, I, I-, I missed you last week. I, I couldn't be here because um, last week I tested positive for COVID, which was super hard. To- it was a really mild case, but I had to quarantine at home with my family and all of that. Honestly, though, uh, missing church like last minute, it was kind of cool to see our whole amazing team just like step in and step up to fill in for me. Lauren, um, if you know Lauren, she shared her story, which was so powerful. Um, Yeah, if you don't know her, you need to. She's just like fully like a a pastor in her own right. We're so glad that she's a part of our team. Brooke taught the scriptures, which was awesome. And so I just came away from that experience just feeling really grateful to the Lord for just the incredible team that the Lord has brought around us. You guys have some great leaders. We're blessed and fortunate. Um, we have a, like, this is a really fun. As a pastor, I've pastored a couple of different churches now as a pastor. It's so fun to be able to pastor um, here at Riverbend because um, we get to do life with people that we genuinely enjoy doing life with. So it's great. So um, that said, I do have one complaint about last week. One complaint, okay? So I listened back to the audio of Brooke's teaching, which he did a great job. I'm not saying anything about that. But at the beginning of his message, he was sort of explaining why I wasn't here and all of that. And he took a couple of jabs at me, which is, you know, kind of par for the course with Brooke. It's okay. I've come to kind of expect that from him. But you enjoyed it way too much. You don't even try and pretend like the audio doesn't lie, okay? You all were roaring with laughter at the fact that I was at home sick. And, um, you know, it's okay. I, I can be the bigger person, you know, it's fine. Well, you guys were laughing at me at my expense. You know, I was at home fighting off COVID and just like praying for you guys. <laughs> just teasing. Oh, man. In fact, actually, now it's the Moser's family. Uh, the Moser family now has COVID, which is not good. You guys don't laugh at that. You laugh at me, but you don't laugh at the fact that the Mosers now have it. I'm just obviously teasing. I cannot wait, you guys, for the day where we don't have to talk about masks or pandemic or any of, any of the rest. God willing, that's nearly behind us. Um, but today we are going to be wrapping up our little mini-series uh, in the month of January on sharing the gospel. And um, if you've been around Riverbend long, you know we're all about this thing called Alpha, which is a way that we get the word out about Jesus. And at Riverbend in 2022, we are about three things. We want to reorganize our lives around prayer and worship. We want to actually grow deep and mature in our discipleship to Jesus. We don't want to go another year unchanged, but we actually want to grow deeper in our faith. And then we want to be uh, ones who practice the love of Jesus, both in word and in deed. And so this little series has gotten us ready for the launch of Alpha in March. And today I'm just going to be sort of finishing that off. So um, generally speaking, we want our friends and neighbors to know Jesus. We do. Yeah, deep down, we know that he's like the best thing that can happen to a person. But over the years, I've observed that we are pretty apprehensive about sharing Jesus with others because our experience tells us that people are closed off to talking about faith. And on one hand, I agree with that. Like, yes, Jesus is a taboo subject in the Pacific Northwest in 2022. No two buts, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, and, and yes, oftentimes people view us Christians as like closed-minded religious fanatics. And sometimes people even present with these really what seems like impervious objections like you guys are anti-science or whatever. 
But all of the latest research, and quite frankly, from like our personal experience here at Riverbend, um, people are far more open to talking about faith than we realize or give them credit, especially young millennials and Gen Z. And I think there's all kinds of reasons for that, some of which we'll get into today. However, people are, tend to be more particular today than they were 20 years ago about the kinds of people that they want to have faith conversations with. And there's lots of great research on this that I can show you. But if you are a person who's like culturally sensitive and have a lot of friends who don't follow Jesus, you know this intuitively to be true. So the real problem isn't really about sharing faith, it's about methodology, and sometimes it's about like the messenger, which is why, again, here at Riverbend, we're all about Alpha. I think it's an amazing way for your skeptical, cynical friends, maybe deconverted friends who might want to talk about faith but don't want to come to a church service or whatever. We believe that this is a really awesome format or methodology for getting the word out about Jesus. In fact, um, there's this um, one pastor who's a friend of ours uh, down in L.A. Um, at a church called Vintage. His name's Garrett Jones, and I've quoted him before, but I want to just remind you of this quote because I think it's very telling. Is there a way to tell others that isn't pushy, judgy, super awkward, Preachy, disrespectful, arrogant, unloving, unkind, cheesy, shaming, super difficult, or social suicide. <laughs> I, I really like that quote because I think deep down we're all looking for a way to invite our friends to know Jesus, but we don't really know how to do it in a way that's not awkward. So sharing the gospel, I believe, is always going to be risky, maybe even challenging, but it doesn't need to be awkward and, and weird. And it, again, if you have deep relational connections with your friends and neighbors and you have a high level of cultural sensitivity and if you're secure enough in who you are in Jesus to already step out and venture out and share faith, then you already, already likely see right here and right now the gospel has power. Um, the gospel has power despite sort of the outraged and post-everything moment that we're living in. The gospel of Jesus has power. And by God's grace, I believe that we are on the front edge of an awakening to the gospel about Jesus. I think that if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard my case for why I actually think that secularism is in decline, not the church, and I believe that the kingdom of God is rising to take its place. Case in point, a couple of weeks ago, I rolled into our Tuesday morning prayer meeting a couple of minutes early, about 15 minutes early or so, and there was already two gentlemen in their early 60s who I had never met before who were standing in the parking lot, and they said, dude, I heard about you guys, I heard about the fact that you're praying. God moved us here seven years ago so that we could pray and contend for a revival in our city. It was like being reunited with long lost brothers that I had never met. Like these guys are, I, I kid you not, so incredible, it was so encouraging. Um, to just see the same kind of hunger and fervency and passion that God has given us in other human beings. And we genuinely believe that God is on the move in our city. So what I mean by that is um, all throughout church history, um, every major like movement of God has been preceded by a handful of people who are devoted to pray for an awakening to the gospel. You've heard me talk about the Moravians. You've heard me talk about the Hebrides revival. You've heard me talk about the Great Awakening, Azusa Street Revival, and the Jesus Movement in the 1960s in Southern California. All of these movements began 
because of a group of people who are praying fervently for an awakening to the gospel. And so um, we have been inspired by those stories and we want to see God do something similar here. We're like, yeah, we're, we're super excited to hear about all of those things and to read about those things happening, but we want to be a part of something Today, in Central Oregon, wouldn't it be amazing if in a couple of years' time, Bend wasn't just known as the place where people go to ski or stand up paddleboard and there's good beer there? But wouldn't it be great if Bend was known as a place that, where there was like, a, like, a, like a, uh, a vibrant community of people who are following after Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing? And that's our heart. That's frankly what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's why I'm excited to be in front of you today teaching the scriptures because this is what we are laser focused on as a church. And Neil and Paul, who are my new friends, you got to come out on Tuesday mornings and pray with us. Honestly, it's been so rad to have them part of the crew. So um, open with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. I just realized that how I had a really long-winded uh, introduction to the scripture, so I apologize about that. Uh, so if you're new to the story of the Bible, the book of Acts is the first generation of Jesus followers who were sent out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sort of after the ascension of Jesus, and they were meant to go and to share the word about him. And within a few decades, this gospel, this good news, had spread to literally the whole Roman Empire. And I love to think about how, you know, 2,000 years later, literally on the other side of the globe, you and I are following in that same trajectory, or we have that same mission, and we're here because there's been this unbroken chain of people who've been faithfully sharing the Jesus story again and again and again, and that's where we can genuinely trace our lineage back to that. So there's this guy named Paul, who's one of the first apostles. He's one of the first ones who um, is sharing the gospel um, in these um, cities across the Roman Empire. But prior to that, he was a staunch like denier of the gospel, even to the fact where he was persecuting Christians and having them killed. But he became one of the greatest voices, if not the greatest voice for the gospel, uh, maybe of all time. And when he was in Athens, so Athens, Greece, you can still go visit today. Um, this is what happened. Um, we're going to read a scripture, um, but as we do that, would you guys just like stand to your feet with me, um, just in honor and respect for the word. So this is going to be a slightly longer passage than normal, so just like settle into the story and follow along with me. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human hands or design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands that all people everywhere repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead." And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And after that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Go ahead and find your seat. So I know that was... um, quite a bit of scripture, but I wanted you to get like the full story because what we want to do here is immerse ourselves in the gospel story today. And to to me, this is such an inspiring example of sharing the gospel, especially given our time and culture, to a city that's filled with idols and to a group of intellectual skeptics. Paul stands up in the original ivory tower at the center of Greco-Roman culture, and he delivers a message that cuts to the heart of why the gospel is actually good news to the Athenians. And it's interesting because it's met with mixed results, right? We see that there are some people who believe and others who don't, which is actually always the case with the gospel. Not everyone is going to accept it. In fact, my father-in-law, he's like an evangelist, And he travels around to all over Latin America and he gathers big groups of people like 100,000 people at a time in a big open field with a ton of like musicians and everything else. They call them festivals. And at the very end of it, he stands up in front of the whole group and shares the gospel. And it's really cool. I used to work with him and stuff like that. So I got to be a part of a lot of those things. But it was a much different, more open culture and all of that. But his theory is that even in a setting like that, and even with a group of people and a culture that's far more open than ours is in the Pacific Northwest in 2022, if in case you didn't know, we're kind of closed compared to the people in Latin America. Um, And uh, in in his view, only one in four, about one in four people will receive Jesus in a context like that. So again, sharing the gospel is always going to be risky. But as we learn here from, from Paul in Athens, what can we take away from his sharing of the gospel? And how is it actually good news in our time and context? How is the gospel actually good news to your neighbors and to your friends? The ones who maybe potentially wouldn't come to church on Sunday, but they might listen to you 
talk about faith, or they might respond to an invitation to come to an Alpha gathering and hear a bit more about Jesus there. What is this good news, and how is it actually good news in our time and context? So a couple of things uh, that we observe from the text. There's obviously so much. In fact, there are great books that are written on that passage because it's seen as like a really brilliant sermon. Uh, But there's four things that I want to observe from the text that we just read. Number one, Paul is gospel fluent. He's fluent in the gospel. And um, this is something I want to key in on because we want to be these kinds of people who are immersed in the story about Jesus to the point where we know the gospel backwards and forwards. And when people ask us, we know how to describe the gospel to them. Because it's, it's like in our hearts and we live according to that story. This is not just like another story from culture. It's not a plot from one of your favorite movies. It is the story in which we define ourselves. It's the story about Jesus. Number two, um, Paul was a student of the Athenian culture, which we're going to talk a bit about that in a minute. Number three, Paul was burdened for people far from God. The scripture says that he was walking through the streets waiting for his companions to get there, and he's burdened by the fact that there are these people that are far from God, and he wants them to experience Jesus so much so that he goes into the synagogues, and then he goes to the Areopagus, the original ivory tower, in order to proclaim the good news. And then that's number four, is that he stood up and he spoke when the time was right. So he had the courage, he had the boldness when it was his time to actually speak. So, um, What we want to do for the rest of today is to basically become students of our culture. Like take a lesson from Paul who sort of studied the Athenian culture and then messaged the gospel accordingly. We want to look at our culture a little bit. And, um, and, or at least how I see it. And then what we want to do is sort of assess our gospel fluency. Assess our gospel fluency. So as you're listening to us go along here, I just want to encourage you to be asking yourself the question, am I fluent in this? Do I possess this? Can I share this? Like, for example, like if next month you share a ski lift with a stranger and they sit down with you on the ski lift and they say, I've been searching my whole life for a spiritual reality worth believing in. Tell me, how do I know God? Is there a God? And what does he mean to you? Could you answer that question? Could you, do these things pour out of you in a genuine way or would you have to FaceTime Brooke? It's not a bad idea. (laughs) Not a bad idea, but this is better, far better is that you come to possess the gospel, and the gospel possesses you in such a way that it pours out of you in a genuine way. John Steinbeck writes, No story has power, nor will it last, unless we feel in ourselves that it's true, and that it's true of us. So when we talk about the gospel, the goal of the exercise is not to ensure that you can like ace the quiz and all the technical details of what the gospel is all about. The goal is that the message about Jesus is the air that you breathe. And again, I'll say it, that you define yourself according to the story of Jesus. So first off, like uh, Paul in Athens, he starts in the right place. And this is really important. Sometimes we start in the wrong place. But this is where Paul starts. He starts with like a deep connection with and sort of an empathy for the stories of Athenian culture. Again, he had walked the streets and was familiar with their idols. He knew what made them tick. It was the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies and things like that. He was well-versed in their poetry and even used it in his sermon. And he used a cultural icon, the statue to the unknown God, and then he reappropriated it to Jesus. So the bottom line is that he knew what mattered to the Athenians. And more importantly, 
He knew how Jesus satisfies the longings of the human heart where their current version of spiritual reality did not. So in other words, not only did Paul know the Athenian cultural story, he knew where the the cultural story did not deliver on its promise, and he knew how the message about Jesus actually did. So again, sometimes we start in the wrong place, and this isn't to pick anyone apart or to jab other people in the church or anything like that, but sometimes we start with things like, hey, would you mind if I corner you for a little while and answer questions to things that you don't care about? And then we wonder why they're rolling their eyes at us and and all of that. See, sharing the gospel well involves having a deep connection with the city in which we live and having empathy for the ways the stories of our culture are not delivering on their promise. So again, we want to examine and look at the story of our culture. So here's how I've gone about that in my just sort of personal life with Jesus in Bend. We need to know things like this. What are the idols in our city? What are the burning questions of our generation? What are the key longings of the human heart that go unmet when somebody doesn't know Jesus? What story or stories from our, cultural, from our culture carry gospel themes? And then how do I tell others about Jesus in the most loving way? Because again, it's not enough to be right or for our gospel to be persuasive to us. We need to have genuine love in our hearts for people who are lost without him. And I just hope that you can sense the sincerity and the genuineness in my tone of voice that we don't just want to be right about spiritual truth. We want to have love for the people who are far from God in a way that actually makes them want to know Jesus the way that we've come to know Jesus. Amen. So what about our culture? Today we're living in a time full of deconversion stories. Deconversion stories. So people are defining themselves against the Judeo-Christian framework of their childhood. We could all tell stories about friends who no longer come to church anymore because they um, have deconstructed their faith. And that is, the, by the way, the fastest growing demographic in America is the deconverted. And they're trusting in the stories of our culture instead. And one of those stories from our culture is um, what's known as scientism. And scientism is this vision of the good life that's based on what we can observe through science. Now, to be very clear, we're not anti-science, not in the slightest, but scientism is an ideological framework that's behind a view of the natural world. So it turns out, according to scientism, that you're basically an accident. You're here for no reason. Uh, You emerged from the Big Bang and this primordial soup that (laughs) existed at the beginning of time. So in this construct, hope, meaning, love, and joy, these are all just literally synapses firing in your brain. But in actuality, the cosmos doesn't care about you at all. You are just biology. So the solution in this framework is to simply impute meaning into nihilism. It's, uh, in the West, that's like things like the pursuit of happiness and progress. So our technology, our quality of life, our politics, our relationships, they're all in service of my happiness or the progress of humanity. And one day, the hope of scientism, even the ones who hold this view, will tell you that the, the absolute best that you can hope to gain from scientism is that we will sort of medicate away our feelings of emptiness by cultivating a utopia where we feel meaning even though meaning is just an illusion. So that is one of the stories from our culture. 
Then we also have the story of secularism, and this is the gospel that our generation has swallowed whole. It's not really a unified story. It really has everything to do with just individual expression and self-actualization. And in this vision, like any semblance of organized religion or system of belief or truth claims or even non-religious systems of belief, like scientism, are seen as regressive or even oppressive. So secularism says that I don't know if we're ever going to find answers to the big questions in life or how could we possibly sort it all out and know for certain if anything is actually true. So the, so the solution for the secular framework is just authenticity. In this, if you hold this view, then the only thing that I truly know for sure is to express myself in ways that feel authentic to me right now. That's the best we can do. And this is where you get the anthem, you do you, or live your best life, or just about every other social media buzz phrase out there in 2022. Again, not to knock it, we're just like, like Paul, walking the streets of our city and beginning to understand the different stories that we are believing as a culture. So these are, I think, the, the fundamental stories that drive the vision of, of our city and of the modern West. But of course, they all have fatal flaws, apart from being just completely untrue. Um, when my existence is by chance and meaning is an illusion, people end up with having chronically low self-worth, and we end up basing our identity on our accomplishments, which might be fine when we're on the top of the heap or if we're in the prime of life, but it's a fickle thing to base our worth on because at some point we can't produce and we cannot maintain our youth. And so what ends up happening in this system of belief is that I am what I do, or I am what other people say or think about me, but what happens when I can't keep producing, or my sex appeal begins to fall, or whatever the case may be? Ultimately, this person's deepest longing is who is going to really love me for me? That's the burning question at the heart of people who um, are, believe in scientism or some version of that story. If it's all meaningless, why do I still burn for belonging? And why do I still have desires and passion and need to be loved? That's at the core of um, scientism that, that just really cannot fully answer. And with secularism, there's, there's a lot of different problems that we could kind of poke at. We don't really have time for most of it today. But the first problem with the sort of hyper-individualistic mindset is that we become these failed protagonists of these really small stories. And if you've been around Riverbend long, you know I talk about this on occasion because I think this is a story that even in the church we still kind of believe in, that we are the protagonists of our own little stories and uh, what we're doing there is we're sort of betting our whole life on a story that's really small and doesn't live up to the hype. And so maybe at first it feels authentic, which is good. But in reality, over time, the cost of living for myself is just too much because it doesn't deliver on its promise to bring any lasting meaning or to uh, bring any real sense of community. And so a lot of the time we end up sort of losing the plot of life. And we end up misliving, or in the language of the Bible, we end up making a lot of poor choices and sinning again and again. We make a mess of it. So ultimately, this person needs to know, it is in spite of everything that I've done, will someone still accept me for who I truly am? My existence has been basically selfish. I don't even know if I can actually change that. But will someone come along who sees me for who I really am and still choose to accept me? 
These are burning questions at the core of our civilization's visions of the good life. So having empathy for our friends and neighbors is about feeling the weight of those unmet longings and unmet expectations and the gospels of our culture that have failed to deliver. So when you share the gospel about Jesus, you're not winning an argument. You're not convincing them to adopt your set of spiritual principles or anything like that, answering questions they don't care about. You're telling a story about how Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. And Jesus famously said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and then have it to the full. And uh, it's my contention that you are a carrier of that good news about Jesus. Just like last week, I couldn't be here because I was positive for COVID. I wasn't that I was too sick to preach. I actually felt mostly fine. The problem was, is I was a carrier of a virus that would infect you had I been here. And the gospel, I believe, is supposed to work like that too. That when the gospel is active in you, it just begins to spread in a way that's compelling and that other people catch. So, um, so that is sort of a very brief snapshot of what I would say is sort of the cultural milieu in which we live. Those are the burning questions that stories of secularism and scientism can't answer. So what about the story about Jesus? How can that bring real lasting peace and hope? How can the, the gospel about Jesus deliver where the gospels of our culture cannot? Well, there are four basic movements, if you will, in the story of, of Jesus' uh, redemption. And they are creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. And so again, the question here is, are you fluent in this? And we're just going to go through it really quickly. Um, number one is creation. Turns out you do have an origin story. It's just way more meaningful and way better than the primordial soup version. See, science can only tell us that we exist, can't tell us why we exist, and deep down we know we exist for a reason. And so you were made, uh, according to the Christian viewpoint, according to the scriptures, you, you exist to connect and enjoy and live in relationship with God. And in the language of Genesis 1 and 2, he prepared uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the heavens and the earth for human habitation, and he handcrafted you to be like him in his image, and he made you with an identity, and with a destiny, and with a purpose, and even with a vocation, and most importantly, he set you up to thrive in loving relationship with him. That is the original vision that God lays out in the scriptures through Genesis 1 and 2. So basically, there is a God, and he's good. Now, I'm convinced that we are now a part of, uh, we're not doomed to be like failed protagonists anymore of some small story that's all about us. We're actually being invited into a much larger cosmological story with God at the center of it that's for all time. And we get to take part and enjoy and participate in the life that he had in mind for us. So it's far more compelling than the secular vision, if you ask me. But of course, we know that there is also um, the fall or the evil that we experience in the world. There's all kinds of brokenness in the world. It's a mess out there. And I think these last couple of years have just highlighted how much of a mess we're in in our civilization. But as much as I'd like to say the problem is only out there, the reality is that the problem is also within me. I have mislived. I have made wrong choices. I have, in the language of the Bible, sinned. I've contributed to the chaos in the world around me. 
and I've messed it up. So um, the things that drive us when we're um, enslaved to sin are things like anger and envy and frustration and lust. And the reality is that we still live in that reality of sin. And more than that, we cannot undo it. We cannot undo the fact that we've sinned. Brother here in the third row is a police officer, so you might get a kick out of this story. I, uh, a couple of months ago, a member of my family who shall remain nameless was pulled over while she was talking on her phone <laughs> while driving. So uh, don't ask me who it was. And uh, so, so uh, she was pulled over, and then there's, of course, the, the citation and the fine that comes after that. And so she was writing in to see if she could get the, scent, the, the, the fine re- reduced or whatever. And in that moment, it does not help to say, you know, there are so many times that I don't drive with my phone in my hand. I really, most of the time, I don't. It doesn't actually matter because if we do the right thing, even 95% of the time, we're still culpable for the times that we don't. And when it's a traffic violation, it's like 150 bucks or it's the driver's safety class and 80 bucks. Depends on how much you value your time, Right. But in the life, in life the, the penalty is much more than that. It's a disordered soul, and it's loss of relationship with God, and it is a debt that we cannot pay. And it's far more consequential than a parking ticket or a uh, driving citation. Now, it, it is kind of interesting to me, and actually kind of sad to me, that in the present moment in which we live, um, a lot of people in our society see our freedom to do whatever we want as liberating, but in reality... We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to addictive behaviors and our impulsive desires. So again, at the heart of all of this is the question, does anyone have power over sin? Has anyone lived well? Will, will they be the bigger person and help me and save me and redeem me? And who is the one who's willing to do that? So movement number three is the movement of redemption. I love what uh, Titus 3 says. At one time... We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Pause. Okay, so up until now, that's not exactly what you would call good news. But, verse 5, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So redemption is possible because of Jesus and because of both the work that he did on the cross, but also the life that he lived in perfection. And ultimately, when he rose from the dead, that secured his victory over the kingdom of darkness. So when we have peace with God or when we are redeemed, we are being forgiven of our sin and we are being set free from the confines of the slavery of sin. And we are being welcomed into the family of God. So in other words, you and I don't have to hold out for some sort of mythic utopia or have to impute meaning into nothingness. We don't need to binge Netflix again in order to distract ourselves from the reality that we don't have any meaning or purpose. And we are not destined to crave connection just through an app on our phones. We are designed and we have been reclaimed and redeemed so that we can have genuine relationship with God again. 
through the work of Jesus on the cross. This is a powerful, good, amazing story because Jesus moved into the neighborhood and pioneered the way back to life again. So it turns out he's a good God. He became human. He's the king who served, believe it or not. And we can be forgiven of all of our misliving, be accepted into the family of God. So the invitation of Jesus is not to like have a new grid for spiritual truth. Um, it's because he rose from the dead you're actually being invited into life with Jesus. And again, for those of you who have believed that and know that and have been converted and do follow Jesus, wonderful. Are you fluent in that story? Are you fluent in the story? Number two, maybe you've been apart for a while and maybe you go, yeah, 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 I know all the things. I know all the theological points. Okay, dude, I've got it. Thanks for the repeat, but I'm good. Okay, great. But have you internalized this story into your life? Is this now the, the, the thing that defines you as, as a person? Are you identifying yourself as a Jesus follower? Or is it just kind of religious jargon for you? So saying yes to Jesus is just the beginning. Because the final sort of movement in the story of God's redemption is recreation. He's making all things new, and that includes you and I. In the language of 2 Corinthians 5, the old is gone, the new is here. In the language of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the mystery that has been revealed in Christ is that all of heaven and earth is being reunited under him as king. So one day, hopefully soon, as my daughter often does, will look outside and stare up at the blue sky and ask Jesus if he's coming down soon. Hopefully soon. Everything will be as it should be. And Jesus will bring the whole universe under his loving rule. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and King. This is what we hope for. This is our eminent real hope. So there's a future for you. And like we just read in Titus, that um, you are an heir in that kingdom. This is your new identity. And your story actually matters because he's inviting you to partner with him in the unfolding of his peaceful rule in our, in our world. You actually get to play a part in it. So again, you're not just into a small story. You actually are being involved and become an active participant in the unfolding drama of God's love in the world. And that's a really awesome thing. So there's a God. He's good. There's brokenness and evil. There's a redeemer. His name is Jesus. And in him you have peace and you have a hope-filled future. See, this isn't myth or legend. This is the power in the story of God. And you, like I was carrying COVID last week, you carry that message into the world and it brings freedom. So again, the question is, are you fluent in that story? Um, Literally, my most proud moment as a father happened about four months ago, late fall. Um, by the way, I'm the furthest thing from a perfect dad, the prime example of being a dad. In fact, while we were quarantining, I had some low moments, but I'm going to tell you a story that makes me so proud as a dad. I have a four-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter, and um, one of the things that we do almost every night is... Um, when we're putting the kids to bed, I'll share with our kids an aspect of the gospel or a Bible story or something like that, and then we always pray. 
And um, for a couple of years, I've been asking my son, Judah, if he was ready to trust in Jesus. After I'd share a bit of the story about Jesus or about the gospel or some aspect of his life or something like that, I'd say, hey, buddy, are you ready to trust in Jesus? And at four years old, he would look at me and go, Dad, you know, I, I just don't think I'm ready yet. And I go, okay, all right, bud, no problem. Well, Mommy and I are just really excited for whenever you decide you want to trust in Jesus, totally fine with us. And then, um, you know, years go by. Now he's four. It's like September, October last year. We're sitting down at dinner, the four of us. I don't even remember what we're talking about. But out of the blue, Judah just stops everything and says, Hey, Dad, I'm ready to trust in Jesus today. And we're like, come on. That's like the coolest thing ever. So anyways, um, I, like, I don't know why I had this thought or whatever. I was just really overexcited, I guess. And I looked at my daughter, who's nine, Isabel. And I said, Isabel, why don't you remind Judah what it means to trust in Jesus? And when he decides to follow Jesus, what does that actually mean? And you guys, it was the coolest moment probably of my life to see my beautiful daughter just like fluently share the gospel story to my son. And she explained to him about what it means to follow Jesus. It means to trust in him, to ask for forgiveness, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. She talked about the resurrection and everything else. And as I was watching this unfold, I just thought, man, this is easily the high point of my life. And there's many things that I want for my kids. And there's many things that I've done wrong as a dad. Like I want my kids to excel in school and to be successful and to realize their dreams and to listen and obey their mom and, you know, finish their vegetables and all of this stuff, right? But the thing that I most deeply desire for my kids is that they would know Jesus, they would know the gospel, and not only that they would know it for themselves, but they would be gospel people. See, one of the things that I have been concerned about for about a decade now is that in lots of circles of Christian parents, we're talking about how we save our kids from the world. And I'm going, listen, I understand the fears around secular culture and the postmodern moment. It's a little bit tricky to navigate as parents, absolutely. But I'm not afraid for my kids. I want my kids to be on the advance, the front edge of inviting people into life with Jesus. I want my kids to be filled with courage and boldness like Paul, hopefully like their dad, who is on the front lines and sharing with others about Jesus. I'm not afraid for my kids. I want my kids to have courage and boldness to follow him no matter what. And it was really special seeing my kids uh, enter into that. So we stood up and we prayed for Judah. And then we booked it over to Dairy Queen because that's what you do. when someone's, If you trust in Jesus, I'll take you to Dairy Queen. That's just that's what we do. It's awesome. Are you fluent in the gospel story? Romans chapter 1 verse 16. This is Paul writing to a city uh, and a group of people that you had never met. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So the power of the gospel is not how we share it necessarily or in our delivery. It's inherent within the gospel itself. So are you a gospel person? And the deeper question underneath that is will you forge 
deep connections with your friends, your neighbors, your family, your coworkers? And will you have empathy to them to the point where you are convinced of how the gospel about Jesus is truly good news to them? Will you make that kind of a commitment to your neighbors and to your friends? Not just to kind of hold the message about Jesus, but to know specifically their stories to the point where you can be convinced of how the gospel is good news to them. So we're going to be launching Alpha again this year. Actually, March 1st, we're going to have our launch party, which we're super excited about. Again, we're really confident in the leaders that we have to lead Alpha. Sam is our new Alpha director alongside of Brooke. And we've just got an incredible group of leaders that we have a ton of confidence in. I have a lot of confidence also in just like the format of Alpha. Again, I just think it's a great way of getting the word out about Jesus in a compelling way over food and hours and hours of conversation where people can voice their questions and all of that. I think it's a good way to get the word out about Jesus. I also know that we have vetted and we're going to continue to train our leaders so that everyone who shows up will be experiencing the kindness and the hospitality of the kingdom. I know that. And I'm also certain that there are a few of you here with me who are willing to fast and pray for these people to know and to find hope and to trust in Jesus. But the question is, not will you support a program to attend, but the question is, are you truly a gospel person? Is this how you define yourself? Is according to your relationship to Jesus? Are you fluent in this story that when people observe you, when people actually observe you, they get a clear and accurate picture of who Jesus actually is? Are you making this your cause? Is this what brings you out of bed in the morning? Is this why you see your is this how you see your purpose on earth? Is to carry this message about Jesus to our world. Um, and I know that. I come up here often, and I had someone remark not too long ago, like, man, when you get excited, I see this vein that starts to pop out of your neck. So I, I, I get it. I, I, I get that I come off a little intense, as my wife likes to put it. Not bad, just intense. That's how Grace puts it. And I'm aware that over the last several months, I have really tried to impress upon you the importance of taking an active role and participating in getting the gospel out, getting the word out about Jesus. And I don't want to just keep repeating myself, but it is so vitally important that you understand that we are about Alpha. Yes, I will, till my dying day, be so jazzed and excited about Jesus. Absolutely. But the fruit of my work and our work here at Riverbend is not whether or not we get excited, I get excited, but that you carry the gospel message to your friends. I just want that for you. I don't want you to get to the end of this life having spent most of it being concerned about your personal welfare, or whatever anxious thoughts that you carried into this room having. It's okay. Whatever you're going through and God will meet you, but I desire, I long for you to live this life for him, for the cause of the kingdom of God and for the gospel. And we want you to see your friends come to faith in Jesus. My, um, my uncle, my parents prayed for four decades to receive Christ and about six months ago he became a Jesus follower. 
Really cool story. Also, um, my dad's side of the family, they're basically all atheists. My dad got saved in the 60s. And um, basically, he and our whole side of the family is a huge disappointment uh, to our, 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 the rest of my dad's side of the family because they're all scientists and engineers and uber smart, like atheist folks. And so I am like the pinnacle of it. I'm like the, I'm a complete embarrassment to them. They avoid the topic at all costs, what I do for a living. They really, it's, it's, it's a thing. So... Um, so that, that's some of my, my, my backstory in our family. My dad has been pray, faithfully praying for his siblings and our cousins for literally decades. And a couple of months ago, my aunt reached out to my dad and said, I cannot believe I'm actually going to ask you to do this, but will you please pray for me and my son James, so my cousin, because we're estranged from each other, we haven't talked in a long time, and I don't know why, I just feel like I would like to ask prayer for that. And my dad on the other end of the phone was like, absolutely. Oh, and by the way, I've been praying for you daily for 40 years, but I will keep praying for you, and I'm going to pray for James as well. Now, I, I don't know how you choose to hear that. I don't know how that story cuts in your like Pacific Northwest sort of hyper-cynical brain or whatever. I just choose to see this, that God is beginning to work in my aunt's life. And even though she spent the better part of 70 years denying that God exists, that I believe that God is, is starting a work in her. And I can't make any guarantees about your family members or your friends. God has given them free will. We're not manipulating people into the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. But I do know from personal experience and lots of time doing this, that there is something powerful that happens when you commit to pray for your people by name. Some of the coolest uh, revivals that, that we can point to, again, they all begin with prayer. But a couple of the really cool ones that we can point to in the last hundred or so years have begun with people like Billy Graham admonishing and challenging and exhorting people in the church to pray for people by name. Same thing happened during the Jesus movement. The same thing happened when my mentors, Phil and Diane Comer, who are here this morning, Planted solid rock in Portland, which became, I think will go down in history, as one of the greatest movements of God in the 20th century in Oregon. And they, they, this is how the church started. Will you please pray for three people who you know that need to know Jesus? Will you please just pray for them by name every day? So as we get ready to launch Alpha again, and as we make, make it clear when the you know, the, um, the launch party is happening, how the gatherings are going to go and everything else. The first call to action is will you please write down the names of three people. Put it in your phone, set an alarm every single day so that you're praying for these people every single day that they would know Jesus. I can't guarantee anything. All I know that is this, that things happen when we pray. I've seen it way too many times. To, to discredit it. And so my hope is for you that you would embody that same little fervency and passion, whatever it is that I have, that it would be imparted to you and that you would have that same fervency and desire as well for your friends. I know you will not regret your choice to pray for your friends. So please write their names down. Will you please set an alarm on your phone and will you daily pray for them? Are you game? Amen. All right. Some of you are game. Good. Well, let's stand and let's pray.
So um, as we move on to the next part of our gathering, we're going to be singing and worshiping Jesus, obviously. We're going to be coming to the table of communion, which is a perfect way to remember what Jesus has done for us. Um, But I just want to invite you um, to pray along with me that God would just be doing a work in your heart around who to know who to pray for, and then also just around this idea of living the gospel day by day. So Father, we just want to say thank you so much for this grand, great, amazing story. That we don't have to fictitiously create or invent meaning to life. But because we have you, because you made us in your image and because you did not hesitate to redeem us, that we actually have genuine meaning and purpose. And we thank you for that. And we thank you, of course, for the work you did on the cross and how you rose from the dead. In the language of Ephesians, you, you put to death hostility. You, like, killed evil. Thank you for that beautiful thing that you've done. And I just pray for my friends that if anything that I've said today just kind of comes across as like blasé or cliche or whatever, that what would really hit home is your heart for us, your heart for your people. In the language of Psalm 138, your unfailing love. I thank you that You say that even if we're faithless, you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. So I just want to pray over my friends now. Just the reality of the gospel would sink in. And also just pray that those people that we all picture, the names and the faces of those people who we know, just need to know you, need to have relationship with you. pray that you would just create in us a a, a new resolution and a new commitment to keep them before our minds and to keep praying for them. And God, I pray that what comes out of our mouths next, which will be singing, singing praise to you, that our singing of praise would be true worship. That there is no other rival. There's no other vision of the good life for us. There's only you, and there's only you, King Jesus. So would our singing to you actually bring glory and honor your name because you're it for us. You're him. We worship no one else. So you guys, if there's, for any reason, you need prayer. If you want to trust in Jesus and you haven't done that yet or maybe you thought you had but you're, now you're not so sure like man we are just here for you my friends are in the back they'd love to just pray over you for that reason or any reason quite frankly and then also during this next song I just want to encourage you to come forward or go to the back there's uh, the table of communion grab the bread and the cup and then go back to your seat and we'll take it together as one big church here in a minute um, but all of us in whatever way, whether that's coming forward for communion, going for prayer, pray, or, or praising in song, 
just lift your heart to him and give him the, the, what he's owed. Give him what he's worthy of today. Jesus, we love you. You're king. Worship you now. In Jesus' name.